Oh, snap. Hey. You got you got good stuff. Uh, <laughs> it's like you have a podcast or something. Yeah, yes and no. I mean, this camera was really not built to be a webcam. And to make it act as one is more trouble than it's worth. <laughs> yeah, but you got like a microphone. I'm on episode 98 or something and I still haven't done it right. Honestly, the uh, earbuds with the microphone is pretty good. It's not bad as long as sometimes my hair does a thing, which, which I have yeah. to be aware of that. Anyways, don't mind me. I'm like, it's COVID times and I'm just like not hanging out in my hoodie <laughs> trying to, you know. I was honestly doing the same, but I felt like I had to show up and be a person. So, Oh, see, I should have warned you. You don't have to be a person. You just got to put it into I, the acuity scheduling and be like, you don't need to impress yeah. me. <laughs> All right, guys, I am here with Jay Klaus, host of the Creative Elements podcast and creator of Freelancing School. It's a course, right? It's a lot of things. It's a platform. There are courses. There are a lot of uh, articles that are free. We have a community for freelancers that is free. So it's growing as a platform. But yeah, started as a set of courses. And is it when you say the term freelance, is that just anybody in the creative field? Yeah, it's such a loaded term, right? Um, and I have, <laughs> I have a lot of strong feelings about this now that I know a lot more about it. But yeah, what I focus on with freelancing school is really the business of freelancing. Like, I want to help you get your business set up. I want to help you make uh, good financial decisions. Help you protect yourself with a contract. Help you learn how to market yourself confidently. Help you how to learn how to sell more projects. I'm not going to teach you how to be a better interior designer. I'm not going to teach you how to be a better graphic designer or copywriter or developer. Lots of people can help you with that. I want to focus on helping you be a more successful, confident business owner. I love it. And so what's your backstory then? I'm going, am I safe? Are you, yeah, you're going to tell me. Are you a creative or are you coming from the marketing side? I have recently given myself permission to embrace calling myself a creative. I actually say creator more often, but mm -hmm. I, I got into entrepreneurship um, back in 2011 or so when I was introduced to the idea of startups. And I thought, wow, startups are cool. Startups are sexy. So I kind of went down that path for a few years and started a digital ticketing marketplace. It was kind of like StubHub, but a little bit different. Oh, okay, cool. And we we did like the the venture capital sort of path. Like we raised some money, we went through an accelerator, we eventually sold that business. And I said, actually, startups are really hard and startups kind of suck and I don't <laughs> want to do that again. So I took a job in product management at another startup company, but it was a job. It was like, yep. I get paid. If the business goes belly up, it's not on me. This is kind of nice. Yep. <laughs> um, but also coming with that was the fact that I had a boss and I really didn't like it. Really, yeah. really didn't like it. So I went out back on my own and started freelancing in 2016 or 2017. And uh, I didn't actually know what that would look like. And I didn't call it freelancing at the time. I just knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and make it on my own. And it kind of took the form of, I started by facilitating these online accelerators where I would bring in five to 20 people in a cohort and we would meet every week for an hour. They would all be business owners. I thought I would be working with other startup founders. And what kept happening was the people who had the best outcomes and the people who referred other people were creatives. They were service professionals who were like, I'm really good at X. 
I have no idea how to run a business. I have no idea how to get clients. And that just became like my core clientele. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I was beginning to create courses for lynda.com, LinkedIn Learning. Yeah. And they asked me if I could create a course on freelancing. So I said, I absolutely can. And from that, I built up the curriculum for freelancing school. And things are just kind of built from there, <laughs> which has and been like, kind it of just a fun kind evolution. evolved over time without a real, like I'm sure you had a plan after things started happening, but it's kind of like you started something, but never really thinking this is where you were going to yeah. end up. Totally organic because even the name freelancing school, like the accelerator business is called Unreal Collective. And I thought the course curriculum I made would still be created and sold under the brand Unreal Collective. Mm-hmm. But I noticed that the domain freelancing.school was available. And I thought, that's cool. I'll buy that. And mm-hmm. I just thought it would be like a single page website for the courses. And as I've worked with more people and I've gotten more interested in helping people at a higher level, I just said, I'm going to make articles. Like I'm going to make a ton of content. I'm going to create a community. I'm going to make this like a whole platform. So it's kind of worked out well that way, but certainly wasn't the direction I thought I was going to go. And when you started at the startup, when you started at the startup, when you, in 2011, is it, do you mind if I ask, like, how old are you at this point? Is this like fresh out of university or college? Yeah, that was fresh out of college. Um, We did the ticketing company. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, a handful of years after we got bought, we had to work for the company that bought us for a year. And then I only worked at the startup company in product management one year before I was like, I can't, I can't have this, this, this boss and this job. But it taught me a lot about actual product management. Like it taught me the discipline. I was doing it with Tixers. I was a startup company. I was doing it with Tixers kind of because I had to, like I was the product person. I was the customer person. And in this job, I, I got a lot more rigor behind my ideas of product management. And as I started working with creative professionals, I looked at them just like, you have a great product. Like you have the ability to do the thing and get the outcome. What you don't have is the marketing or the messaging or the positioning or the interest in some cases to actually sell the product. Mm-hmm. And um, I, that was just a lens I looked at it through and having started a business already and run through the whole life cycle of it, like yeah. I just knew how to run a business. And yeah. I, I found that I could really help those people a lot by thinking about things like a business. Because the unfortunate thing is when you get into freelancing, it's usually you are drawn to the idea of autonomy and having agency over your time and just having a lot of control. Mm-hmm. But if you don't treat the business like a business, it's not going to reward you with those things that you wanted. It's not going to reward you with more time. It's not going to reward you with the money that you need to survive. Yeah. So there's no point in doing it if you aren't treating it in the way that's going to get you the outcome that you wanted in the first place. Too many people find themselves working more hours than ever, earning less than before. And it's like, that's not what we started this for. You know, I I think that's kind of sad. I feel that hard. Um, I would like to circle back to like you starting freelancing, right? Mm -hmm. Which, you know, you're going to call it that. Um, I feel like there's a really valuable lesson in there in, in, maybe you can share, like, what do you feel like your experience of having just started something and now it, you know, without having it all figured out, like maybe you can share a little bit about that insight. Cause I feel like I talk to sometimes a lot of designers who just feel like they have to have all the answers 
well, I'm not yeah. going to do this yet because I don't have a website. I'm not going to do this because I don't have this. So maybe we can just, yeah, pull out a bit of the learnings on just that little nugget because I find that very interesting. Yeah, uh, I'll share this. And what I'm learning in real time, especially this year, is um, honestly how much my privilege plays into this. Because when I left my job, I just felt completely confident that I could figure it out. Mm-hmm. Like to me, job security was the fact that I knew if I failed, I could go get a job. Like that's what job yeah. security meant to me. I didn't actually want a job and felt and feel secure in that job. So I left and I said, I know I can make money somehow. Let me figure out how to do that. And I gave myself a very short leash where I quit my job in April. And I told myself, if I don't make a dime before June, that's okay. But if I don't make anything by July, I'm going to go back and get a job. And I didn't even like tell myself how that needed to happen. So my first couple of projects, like I helped a friend of mine uh, produce a podcast. That was my first experience with podcasting. And then I helped another friend come up with a bunch of potential names for a startup company. Like these are very short term projects, yeah. but there was just so much power in earning money just because you sold the thing and you got the outcome and, and they paid you for it. Mm-hmm. That gave me so much confidence. And the accelerator was something I had thought that I could do, but it took me a couple months to ramp up and get a format around and get people interested. And I ran like one group for free just to test it. And I used their stories as testimonials to go out to actual people and say, this is something that you need to pay me to do now. And yeah, I I didn't realize that was really freelancing at the beginning. I just knew like, I got to get paid money to survive somehow and I'll do what I need to do. If that's making a podcast, that's making a podcast. If that's helping this person stand up a website in WordPress, it's, it's that. If it's writing copy for their email series, it's that. I was kind of indiscriminate in the beginning. And then, um, well, first of all, you, you gave yourself till June to not make a penny or was there like a threshold of like, okay, I need to at least make this. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to get to basically cash flow neutral as quickly as possible, but I was living so cheap. Like I was a single guy. I was living in a studio apartment above a bar in the Midwest. Like my expenses are really low. I didn't have any college debt. I didn't have a car payment. My car was paid off. So for me to get to a point where it's like, I'm offsetting my burn, like the, the money. Yeah. You wanted money to at least pay for through. your lifestyle. Yeah. And I needed to make like $2,500, maybe $3,000 yeah. a month. And I did the math and it's like, if I do this accelerator program, if I work with 15 people at $400 a person, that will give me the cash I need to get through three months, which is the length of the program. Like the math worked out. I just had yep. to do that. Yeah. And so that was the next test. It's like, okay, can I earn money on my own somehow? Yep. I did it. Awesome. Can I do this sustainably through this program? And that was the first test. And I did that. And then I realized that uh, you have to pay taxes too. And like, I wasn't factoring that in. So I learned a lot about cash flow and budgeting that year. And that's all stuff that um, is, is really core to what I teach now because a lot of people run into that problem and mm-hmm. um, it's, it's painful and it makes you almost resent the thing that you loved in the first place, you know? Yeah, I totally get that. I know sometimes I just feel like I just hired an assistant. She starts on Monday. Yeah, exciting times. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm freaking terrified about it. But it, it's like, I, you just get to a point, you're like, I can't, I can't live like this anymore. I can't always be thinking about work. And if I'm not working, I'm guilty. And I'm scared that I'm, you know, I'm not getting the things done. And I'm just running myself ragged. And then you start to get resentful, right? Which yep. that's not a good place to be. 
Um, the, what I find, what I really like is that you started doing so. Well, first of all, the accelerator, the accelerator program, what can you give us? I'm just curious. It was an accelerator. I assume it means like you were helping, um, businesses accelerate to the next level. Is totally. What it was. And it was kind of purposefully ambiguous. And like the format that I started with mm-hmm. almost four years ago is the same format that I did even through this year, which is basically to say, I feel confident that if you come in and you're a business owner, I can help you get a current state. Like here's where my business is today. We'll map out a plan together for the next 12 weeks to say, this is the end state I want at the end of 12 weeks. We define that. And then we create the actual like milestones to get there. And that is your roadmap for our 12 weeks together. I do that with 15 to 20 people at a time. Mm-hmm. And then I group people based on the nature of their work and the stage of their business. Mm-hmm. And that group of five plus me meets every week and we all have our own milestones, but usually, you know, it's a group of service providers or okay. it's a group of startup founders, or it's a group of uh, content creators. Like everyone's doing the same thing. Every week we focus on one person and their current challenges. And that's just a rotating basis. Everybody gets two calls like that. But even when you're not on the hot seat, as I yeah. call it, like it's, it's very applicable and it's kind of nice to not be in the hot seat every week. It's kind of nice to see like through someone else's lens, the challenge they're struggling with and what we're saying would help yeah. because it should still be applicable to what you're doing. And it was all, <laughs> it's funny. Cause I was just listening to another interview I did a couple of years ago. It's always been over zoom. And mm-hmm. for a while that was, people were like, wait, you don't meet in person. It's like, no, it's all over zoom. People are all over the country. And now it's, it's like second nature. Like, of course it'd be over Zoom. Everything's over Zoom. Yeah. But it's been virtual by design. So it was, it was really resilient to this year's challenges too. That's amazing. And um, can you give a few examples of what those, uh, you said 12 weeks? Yeah. I would love to hear maybe a couple examples of what those, like where people want to get in 12 weeks just to, you know. Yeah, just it was, for my own context of what I should be aiming for within a 12 week period, potentially. Sometimes it was like very project based. It was like, I want to get this website stood up and redesigned and have everything on there. Like they wanted clarity and they wanted to externally show that. Some of them, it was about like revenue goals. Like by the end of this month, three months from now, I want to be earning $10,000 a month. Some of them, it was like, I just quit my job, I'm going full time freelance. I want to have like confidence that everything's set up and I also want to be earning income. So it was very situationally dependent. Um, if they're content creators, sometimes it was like, I want to publish the first episode of my podcast. Um, 12 weeks is both a long time and a short time. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, you hear that people hear, I used to call it three months and three months sounds small because number three is small, but actually week to week meeting with somebody, a whole group of people, 12 weeks straight, it feels kind of long. Yeah. But also it's not the longest period of time where you can get a ton of stuff done. Like you need to have a plan because three weeks can pass you by and oh, nothing has changed. And it's yeah. like, what happened to October, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so the plan really helps and showing up every week and having people staring at you like, Hey, at the end of our call last week, you said you're going to do these three things. How'd they yeah. go? And you say, yeah. oops, I didn't do those. So I go into my public spreadsheet and say no. And you have three lines in the spreadsheet that are highlighted red you're not going to do that many weeks in a row. Yeah. As it hurts. Totally. I, exactly. I mean, I'm doing some coaching virtually now too. And there's a lot to be said for having to show up and oh, I was going to do this this week. And now, because otherwise as freelancers, the only people we're accountable to aside from our clients is us. 
Yeah. So I know for me, it's always been a problem of like, I'm constantly doing the client work, but there's exactly. so many things on the business side I want to grow. And um, we were talking, well, you were going to say something? And that is exactly like the people that came in, that was the benefit they had because I wouldn't even let them declare action items of stuff that was going to happen because it like existentially needed to happen. Like you talking about the client emails you need to send, that's not an action item. We're talking yeah. about on the business type stuff that you can keep your eye on so that you're actually building something and not just on the hamster wheel. Um, actually, I was going to go into another question, but uh, do you find that sometimes I find there's so many things I want to do slash need to do. I mean, we've deemed what we need to do, but I mean, there's things you need to do if you want to grow your business. Maybe needs not the right word, but um, do you find that it can be hard for people to identify what the right next like goal should be? So, you know, if we have a slew of things, there's probably a certain, you know, it makes more sense to do this first before you focus on this or. Yeah. I mean, I think that when we're calm and rational, it's actually really easy. What happens is as creative professionals, like we have a lot of ideas, we get excited about stuff mm-hmm. and the actual <laughs> nitty gritty fingers on the keyboard doing of stuff isn't very fun. So we will hide, we'll take that like <laughs> hesitancy to actually do the work and we'll actually hide behind the idea of, oh, maybe I should be doing this instead. And we just stay in this constant phase of like ideation and then mm-hmm. questioning. But really, if you're honest with yourself and you're treating yourself like your own coaching client and took away, like, this is what you need to do today. If you say next week, what is actually the most important things for you to do for your business? Most of us would be able to say it's this, 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 and this. Mm-hmm. But when you get to the eve of that, the day of, you panic and you're thinking, well, maybe I should be doing this instead. So you really, when I work with people, it's like your new boss is yourself yesterday. It's your Google calendar. It's your Trello board. Like in real time, you should never be questioning, what should I spend my time on? That should be planned for you by rational you yesterday or a few days ago. That's so good. That's freaking genius. Because you're you're your own boss. Like you need to you need to answer to somebody and you need to answer to yourself and you're saying not, you know, trying to hide from work mind. Yeah. And I plug that into my, my calendar. I plug it into my task management, what deadlines, like I always know what I should be doing right now, because if I question it, it's nothing's going to happen. So for you, are you planning every week almost then is that like, or you, so every week you're like, or yeah, what does that look like? Yeah. I actually, I've now, because of the accelerator, I've now fallen into like three month sprints, essentially where I'll set outcomes that I want to happen over the course of three months. Mm -hmm. And then I can kind of build that backwards. Like if I'm going to get there, what are the component parts and on what time frame do I need to get those component parts done? That gives you kind of a near term and midterm goal with some flexibility, because if you try to plan, literally down to the day, you end up giving yourself signals of failure because like life happens and sometimes things suck. So if you have your, I use Trello for my task management. If you have your Trello and all of your cards have strict due dates, Mm. but you didn't get something done today, it's going to yell at you and you're going to feel like a failure and you're going to start to not respect your own ability to set deadlines. So I like to set weekly goals to say this week, here are the three to five things I need to get done to hit these like longer term goals. Yeah. That means that maybe I think I'll get done my podcast editing on Tuesday, 
But if I don't, I can clean that up even on Saturday if I have to. And I, yeah. I'm still successful. And I still yeah. fulfilled the promise I made to myself. I like that. That's a really good way to look at it. And just, um, you call, you use the term sprint, which I know is like a, it's a type of way to plan projects. Maybe you could share, because I suspect most people might not know what that means. Yeah, that's, that's the product management uh, world coming back to me. We would, in the world of product management, you have like a very cross-functional team, right? As the product manager, you're kind of the liaison between the design team, the development team, the executive team, even the sales and marketing team, you're, you're coordinating all these parts. And you usually have this defined outcomes over the course of a sprint, usually a two-week period. So you meet once every two weeks to say, this sprint, here are our goals. Here's the timeline. Here's who's assigned to these. And you literally sprint to get those things done. And then you reconvene two weeks later and say, how did that sprint go? Now we're going to set up the next sprint. You know, it has like kind of a connotation of action, which I like, yeah. but basically it's, it's like the set scope for myself. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, you kind of got to treat yourself like your own client yeah. and scope these things out and make timelines real or things just drag on. You know, you literally will just double and triple the time necessary to complete something if you're not giving yourself a deadline to do it. Yeah, that's true. Um, and okay, so we were going to talk a little bit about sales um, and framing what we do as an outcome. And I talked to somebody on a, an episode once before about, um, you know, graphic designers and how you can frame what you do as like a, your ROI and, and whatnot. So I'd love to hear your philosophy on that and, and any insights for designers on how to do that, particularly residential designers, because that's what I am. That's what a lot of people that listen to me are. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, about that. Any, anything, all the things. Totally. Um, I will try to apply this to residential design as much as I can sure. with the, with the right. caveat that like, I, I haven't done this work specifically, yep. but here's how I think about it. People, most of the time, clients want like a very specific outcome. And for business clients, it's stuff like, I want more profit. I want more yep. customers. I want more revenue. I want lower costs. I want more status in the eyes of my competitors and peers like that's what they're actually driving towards and you need to speak to what the client actually wants people aren't looking to buy services they're looking to buy outcomes they're looking to buy solutions and you need to frame your work in that way it's great to give an roi too and look at it as an investment when you get that far but at the very least like clients have so many options we are living in a world where everything's on demand. We can have so many options for everything. And with that comes this huge fear that we're going to make the wrong choice. Yeah. And so two things happen. We either don't decide until you make us because the fear of making the wrong choice is better than making or is worse than making no choice. Or um, we just like, we, we panic. So the more that you as the service provider can really assure this person that you understand the outcome that they want, and that you feel confident in your ability to deliver that outcome, the more they're going to receive a signal of, oh, this is not that risky. It seems like mm. this is the right choice for me to make. This is the right decision for me to make. You, you honestly need to lead the process and show that you are confident that you can get to that outcome. And that comes from just talking to the person and saying, hey, tell me about what's on your mind. Like, 
most of the time, if you're talking to a potential client, there was some preceding step where they said, I have this going on. I want to talk to you. It can be as simple as just saying like, so what do you want to talk about? (laughs) You know, what's on your mind? How can I help? Mm -hmm. And let them stream of consciousness, dump whatever they need to. Mm -hmm. And then you need to say, okay, let me repeat this back to you. It sounds like you want X and see if they respond. Yes. Or if they build off of that, say, okay, you want X. I can 100% help you do that. What is the timeline that is important for you? And they're going to give you this answer. And now you have your point of urgency that you can use later. You're like, okay, I know you want X. I know this is important for your timeline. You want it done here. Great. Here's what I would recommend. This is you taking a leadership stance. Here's what I would recommend. We need to do X, Y, and Z. And if you want this by that timeline, we need to get started by this date. Like you are making it really easy for them to imagine what it looks like to work with you and also more and more confident that they're going to get the outcome they want on the timeline that they want. And if you go away and you say, okay, I'm going to crunch some numbers. I'm going to come back with a proposal and let you know. When you come back with that proposal, you say, okay, when we talked, I know this is the outcome you want. Again, lay out the outcome. Here's my process. It's going to take this many weeks. I know you want to get it done by this date. So to get started, we need to get moving on this date, you know, you're giving them a choice of when to say yes, so that they can hit the things that they Mm -hmm. have already told you themselves that are important. Um, And if they don't come back on your proposal, this gives you a really easy, natural, non-pushy in to say, hey, wanted to check in for us to hit your timeline, the timeline you said, I'm trying to serve you. This is important to you. We need to start on this date. You know, do you need to have another conversation or are we ready to move this forward? Mm-hmm. you don't have to create false urgency or be pushy when you've mm-hmm. gotten the other person to commit to the timeline that's important to them. You're only re- reiterating what they've already said. It shows a lot of competence. It shows confidence and it makes it feel less risky to go with you. And what about, okay, so let's say what happens for a lot of people. Okay. I don't want to say that in my experience, people some often don't have realistic timelines. So how do you suggest um, responding to people who do not have realistic timelines, especially when it comes to, like I do more furnishing than renovations, but especially when it's renovations, people are like, oh, my contractor's coming next month. But most designers need three months to prepare a full design before it goes to construction, right? So how, how, what's the best approach for coming back with that? Yeah, people... People don't like bad news, but they especially don't like bad news when they feel like they have no other option. So it's just important to give options to say, okay, "Okay, from what you're saying, the things that you need to have happen, it's not practical on that timeline. And here's why. Here's what we can do. We can either get it done by this timeline or we can do this much on that timeline and then we can build from there. You know, give Mm. them like very step, like very practical steps forward so that they still have a choice to say like, this is ultimately what I'll be happy with. Um, I love that. That's, that's really smart. It's the same when you uh, are thinking about like raising your prices or something. Mm -hmm. A lot of people just be like, Hey, I'm raising my prices. It's happening next month. And people already don't like when prices are being raised, but they also hate when they don't have a choice. Like you need to give people some agency and a choice. So giving them advance notice saying, you know, you can hang on and it'll go to this rate and this month, or we'll finish out what we're doing now through this time period and we'll part ways and that's okay. 
Yeah. You just need to give them a choice. So they don't feel like they're locked in. Mm-hmm. This podcast is supported by Ultralux Linens. And guess what, guys? I got my new living room drapes. And of course, it was Ultralux Linens that made them. And they're absolute pure perfection. So I have never owned real drapes before. No, I've owned real drapes. I haven't owned custom drapes before. And so I really feel like I've made it. And I love them because they don't flare on the bottom, which is a huge pet peeve of mine. I don't like a really bulky drape. And so when they arrived... They were perfectly accordion folded. Don't think that's the technical term for it, but they were perfect and they went in and it's like it transformed my living room. They are made perfectly. The pleat is perfect. I'm, the length was perfect. Everything was amazing. And I've got more drapes coming in. It's like they're coming. They're coming fast and furious. I've got my bedroom and I've got my music nook and dining room next. So I'll keep you posted. But guys, they carry over 75 different fabric brands. And the great thing is it's all under one roof. You're going to get the exact same designer pricing you'd get if you went to all of these brands direct. You can tell them about new brands you're interested in in case they don't happen to have them. And she will absolutely try to get those for you. They have towels. You can pick the colors that you want. They have bed linens. You can get custom duvet covers made. Again, just pick any old fabric you want. Get exactly what you need. Bingo, bango. You are done. And there's so much more. They carry so many different things. It's incredible. If you are not already following them on Instagram, go to Ultralux Linens. Follow them. Let's give them a little love. Also go to ultraluxlinens.com. And if you are in the GTA and you are at the Toronto International Design Center, they are suite 202 on the second floor. So go check them out, guys. They're amazing. And um, what about people? So do you also suggest, like for designers, we've got, you know, the budget for what the renovation or furnishing decor project's going to be. There's that piece. And then there's the service piece. And speaking again from my experience, which I'm hoping having an assistant is going to free up some time to work on attracting the right clients. But sometimes I get people who really just don't understand what the cost of working with a designer is. And you can just tell. So for example, I can tell maybe by where they live because that's part of what they fill in when they schedule a call with me. It gives me a bit of insight. Um, sometimes also the way they word, you know, what they're looking for in that inquiry form. So it's kind of like my spidey senses are like, I, I need to make sure that this is worth like, you know, putting any additional effort in or whatever. Um, how do you like to approach budget? And and if when they don't know, I also don't want to throw out a bunch of numbers without like showing any value. So it's this really messy thing, yeah. which I fully did earlier this week. And yeah, you know, it didn't work out, but uh, I have so many things to say on this. So let me, let me start with a couple things. Okay. Money and price is a story for the most part. You know, think about the last thing that you bought. Literally before you bought that thing, you told yourself some sort of story. So for me, was something I bought recently? I bought a new Xbox recently. I haven't bought a video game system in years, but I bought mm-hmm. one recently. And before I bought it, I justified the cost of myself saying, this is actually a really good de-stressor. This mm-hmm. is a way for me to not work all the time. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's purchasing your service is telling themselves a story too. So your job is to understand the story they're likely to tell themselves and make it easy for them to, to tell themselves that, that story and justify that price. 
So because people, they find money for the things that they want. They just do. If you really mm-hmm. want something, you're going to find money to do it, especially in, um, in something that's not like an essential good, mm-hmm. right? So in, in circumstances like this, what I do is I go into the conversation knowing what my rates are going to be that I share. Like what I don't want to do is go into a conversation without having considered it and agree to something that I haven't thought about mm-hmm. or word vomit a price that I'm going to hate later. You know, so I, I go into every conversation ready to lead because again, you're most likely to get this project if you go into the con- conversation and you lead the way. So I think about like, how am I going to lead this conversation? And where do I want to, where do I want to go? What price? And what are my other options? Meaning like, if they say that price is too much, how would I reduce the scope into what price? Or if it goes really well and they're really excited, what could I offer on top of that to expand the scope? You just need to think ahead about those things okay. and then be very matter of fact. Like this goes back to people needing certainty. You need to be confident in your own prices and your own values because people sense when you're not. And that signals to them, like maybe I'm making the wrong decision. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is again, something that I've had the privilege of figuring out because I'm a straight white guy in America. Like when you have confidence, things just yeah. become easier. Like you go in, you say, this is what it is. And they won't question like, maybe I can negotiate down. They think that's what it is. And if you've made the case that you'd be pleasant to work with, you get the outcome that you want, they're going to say, all right, I'll find the extra thousand dollars here to make this happen. Because here's the other thing. People don't love price shopping. Um, People would so much prefer that the solution they're exploring is the right solution and they can stop searching right now. Mm-hmm. And people will sometimes pay a premium because they realize this is going to get me the outcome that I want. And I would rather just keep moving forward on this than try to find somebody else and save a little bit of money. Yeah, that's, that's interesting too. Um, that's very interesting. Okay. My process right now is like I do a discovery call, right? And I'm curious. I want your hot take on this. So I do a discovery call and sometimes, like I said, my spidey senses are tingling and I'm like, mm, I just feel like this person, like what I find that when people immediately lead with price, that's like a red flag in my experience that if they're, if that's like one of the first questions yeah. they're asking, normally it means like I would the, agree with that. 5,000 to start for like one room or whatever it is, is for just the services is just not in the realm of possibility. So that being said, like you said, if maybe, um, I'm just trying to gauge of like, when is it, when do you think? Well, let me, let me give you some more content. Let me give you some more context. Okay. People hire the best person for their job in their subjective opinion. Yeah. Best, best is a very relative term. If someone's coming in and asking about price up front, you know that their lens for the best option has Ooh. price as a component. That's so good. You want to have someone with the lens of quality or experience or oh like working style. These are like culture fit type questions, but this is, this is solving, you know, how do I position myself to be the best option for somebody? If they come in asking about price, if you want that client, you're going to have to be the Holy best option shit. on price. That is so freaking good. 
That is so good. That's like really good. I've never heard and, that either. And, and outside of that, I would just recommend anybody out there listening, like think about a range of prices yep. that make you excited for certain types of work so that if they're having that question up front, just very matter of fact, say, well, I need to get some more information, but my projects range from this dollar to this dollar, or they start at this dollar mm-hmm. to give them a chance to basically say like, I'm going to pull the plug right now. And that's yeah. okay. Yeah. Let's not waste each other's time. Um, I really feel like that is such a, okay. What did you say again? Cause I, I want to, I can listen to this again when I edit it, but it, it was people are looking for the best fit for them. And if they're leading with price, they've determined price is what's the best fit. Yes. Holy shit. That is so good. That is, that just feels like it like freed me in a sense. Like otherwise they'll ask like, and what is your style? Who have you be. worked with? Yeah. Like they want to yeah. know, they want to have, they want to tie themselves to a certain standard of quality or a certain type of person, a certain status. You're going to have a lot more flexibility in terms of price then, because it's going to be easier for them to tell themselves a story. That I should work with this person yeah. because it's more about who you are and the work that you do, as opposed to the price that you're quoting them. That's good. That's really good. Um, okay. So, I mean, I, I have to assume I can't, like, it's if somebody's leading with price, I should remain open-minded as well, though, obviously, not just assume, like, well, they've determined price is the number one thing. Are you drinking chocolate milk? It's a protein shake. I forgot to eat lunch. Okay. So, where are you right now? Where? I'm in my home office. Yeah, sorry. Like, where? You're in the States, I assume? Yeah. Ohio. Um, Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, Ohio. What's the time right now? 3.38. Okay, here too. All right. Like a true entrepreneur hasn't eaten lunch yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't even but know yeah, keep, keep an open mind yeah. if they're leading with price. But again, like this is where the um, preparation comes in. Give them your range so they yep. can disqualify themselves. Because you will get to a point where it's just like, I'm having too many conversations with people that will not pan out to be clients and should not pan out to be clients. I need to filter them better. And maybe that's making your intake survey before a discovery call a little bit more intense. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's like having a starting at price on your website. Those yeah. are good milestones to hit as a business owner because you don't want to spend your time doing a bunch of discovery calls that aren't going to pan out because they're looking for the cheapest price. Mm-hmm. And I think too, for the listeners, um, you know, there are people who do e-design and, you know, there's people who do only full service and whatever. And I think it's important for us to figure out like what type of designer do you want to be and what makes you excited and happy every day? Like I've decided a long time ago, not that long ago, but a while ago that being the cheapest was not something I wanted to be. And I don't want to do e-design because the cheaper the person I find the bigger pain in the ass that client becomes. So, so, um, so I do think it's important for people to kind of figure out what is your filter of, yeah. you know. Like you can you can reverse this. When I was saying about people choose the best option for them. Yeah. You can reverse this and explore for yourself. Who am I the best option for? Yeah. And then you start to position yourself for that type of customer in your messaging, in your pricing, in everything. So that it becomes really clear that for the people who are looking for this type of help, mm-hmm. you are the best. Mm-hmm. Whether that's saying I work with this type of individual or this type of business owner or this type of home, like you can position yourself as the best option for these subsets, especially if you identify like, who do I love working with and who's getting a great result from me? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely need to do a bit more of that as well. Um, what else? Like, 
What else do you want to share with regards to the sales process? Like those were amazing nuggets. I'm curious, like what are, do you have other philosophies that are you hold of high importance when it comes to sales? Yeah, I think the, the biggest piece of advice that I give people, like most, most service providers will tell me that their businesses run on word of mouth. Mm-hmm. It's like, yep, I get that. So does mine. But they don't take the next step to figure out like, okay, how do I ramp that up and get mm-hmm. more of that then? And it's actually pretty simple in my opinion. I think this is the best long-term business development strategy you can take. It is long-term. Like you got to play a long game here, but presumably if you're playing this as an entrepreneur, like you're playing a long game. Yeah. So I, I kind of broke this down into an acronym called eyes and ears, the eyes and ears method, because it's both, um, it's kind of intuitive. Like you need extra sets of eyes and ears for your business out there. And it's an acronym. So eyes stands for establish your elevator speech which is basically to say in one sentence, in one breath, who do you help and how do you help them? Use the framework, I help X do Y. So maybe you help homeowners um, design their dream home, or maybe you help realtors design homes for sale. You know, I help X do Y, put it in that framework. If you have the word and in there, it's probably too long because people have very short memories. And what you're trying to do is create this very short very memorable, very repeatable script for the people in your life who are around you, who already know you, like you, trust you. Those are the people who are most likely to refer you. Coincidentally, they're also the people most likely to hire you right now. Like if they already know you and they already like you and they already trust you, they're more likely to hire you than someone that you haven't met yet. Mm -hmm. So it needs to be really easy and obvious to those people what you do and that you might be able to help them. And if you can't help them, You want to use these specific terms so that when they're out in the world and they're talking to somebody else about their problems and that person says, oh, I just bought a new house or I need some interior design help or something like that, you're the first person to mind because the only person they're going to refer is the best referral option, which is usually the first person to mind, which is usually because of some specific language in your elevator speech, whether it's interior design, whether it's small businesses, whether it's realtors, they're going to hear some word that person says, tie it to some word you said, and they're going to throw you at that person's problem and say, you got to talk to Michelle. Mm -hmm. And then the other part of eyes and ears is ears, which stands for empower advocates to refer sales, which is basically just saying, once you know how you describe yourself, and when people ask, what do you do? You have this answer that you can just vomit out. Then you need to talk to everybody in your life and start socializing that language. Basically, like I said, the people who are most likely to hire you are people who know, like, and trust you. You already have those people. They're, they're called your advocates. That's what I call them. They're either going to refer you or they're most likely to hire you themselves. And so you might as well go through your Facebook, your address book, your emails, reach out to people who you already know and reconnect with them. And say, I would love to, you know, chat and hear what you're up to. Talk for the next 20 minutes. They might not hire you, but if you start the conversation talking about them and say, what's going on in your life? They are going to probably start talking about things that are challenging for them right now or hard for them right now. And sometimes you're that solution. Sometimes you can mm-hmm. be like, I can help you with that. And they yeah. say, oh my gosh, the solution to my problem is right in front of me. I will hire you. Let's do it. Other times they'll just be like, damn, that was so nice. I'm so glad I caught up with Michelle. And they'll realize, oh my gosh, I've been talking for 20 minutes. What are you up to? How are things going for you? Mm -hmm. 
And you can say, glad you asked. Um, I've been doing my own business now. I help X do Y and it's really fun, but I have some, you know, I have some uh, open space before the end of the year. I'd love to work with some more X to help them with some more Y. If anybody comes to mind, please keep me like, please keep me in mind. Mm-hmm. And you just rinse and repeat that over and over and over again with all the people in your life. Yeah. Because they're going to go out in the world and they're your source of referrals. And the more people that you meet and empower with this elevator speech, the more likely that any given time, there's someone out there having some conversation where you're the solution to somebody's problem. That's so true. And sometimes I find, shockingly, I get leads for people who just got referred and they they didn't even check my website. Just, you got because referred. That, that trust was transferred on. The yeah. person they talk to trusts you, likes you, says you should talk to Michelle. And that's yeah. strong enough that they say, great, I would love to have my problem solved. Sounds like yeah. Michelle can help. Yeah. And so... What, what types of, you said you work, like what types of creatives do you mostly work with? Would you say? I work with a lot of copywriters. Oh yeah. Um, I work with a lot of graphic designers and people who do branding. Um, some engineers, some coaches. Yeah. Because the selling process is really the same. Like if you are working with clients, you have a couple options. You can go direct to client, which is what most people do. And I think has the most long-term resiliency. You can subcontract for other firms, but you don't own the relationship and you can't really be in control of when work comes in. Or you can go to a freelance marketplace like Upwork, which probably isn't relevant to what you guys do. But for a lot of freelancers, that's, that's a relevant path. And I always encourage that you go with the first route, try to go direct to client. But if you need to and can augment that income with subcontracting or some other source, then, then go for it. But you have the most pricing power if you go direct to client. It's just the longest process of building. Of mm-hmm. the three. Um, do you work with people who are trying to build online businesses? Yep. Yeah. What I would like to hear your thoughts and feelings on. If I was somebody, because I, I was given this advice before, but I'm just curious on, because there are people that listen to this who want to build e-design businesses and whatnot. Um, if you were going to give advice to somebody trying to build an online business, what would you say is the first thing they need to do? I mean, maybe that's a loaded question, but. Same exercise of I help X do Y, figure out who you're trying to help and in what way and why your take on it is unique versus how they can solve that problem elsewhere. Like you need to make sure that that formula works. Like you need to have some sort of unique flair to yourself and maybe it's your personality and that's okay. That probably has some limit of scale, but that is by default something that's going to be different about the way you do things. It's through your lens. And a lot of people who follow someone online or buy from someone online, like they are buying because of that and that's okay. But try to find a unique position for, I help this type of person do this type of thing. And then start creating content and sharing your ideas around it. Because the most resilient business model for creating online is building an audience and being so attuned with their needs that you can create new products and sell it to them at a drop of a hat. Like this, mm-hmm. this past week, I had, I'd been thinking for a while about um, building a short course around my podcasting process because we do a lot of post-production. We put a lot of production work into the show. I'm really proud with how it sounds 
but it's almost like an obscene amount of work for a weekly show or like it feels that way to people. They're like, how are you doing this? How are you making the sound so good? How are you yeah, getting artwork and transcripts? And, and like you have scripting and narration. How do you do this? And so I've been thinking for a while that maybe I will make something around this. I had two people reach out to me in one day asking about it. I said, I'm going to see if there's a need here. I put together a sales page on Teachable. I emailed my contact list and I said, hey, I'm putting together a course on how to produce a professional sounding podcast on a tight budget or with a small team. I'm only going to make it if people actually want it though. So here's the link. You can buy it for half off right now. If I get 10 people to buy it ahead of time, I'll make it. Mm-hmm. And I sent that email two days ago. I'm sitting here. I have nine people who have bought it out of the 10. So it looks like I'm going to make this course. Yeah. But it's an, it's an amazing thing to just be able to email people who already know you, like you, and trust you and say, I'm making this thing. Do you want it? Yeah. And just test if they want it. Like that's yeah. amazing. But you have to work for years at building the audience. That's, that's I think, the key that I... That's what I kind of wanted to hear from from you is I feel like there's a lot of people going straight to making something and not realizing like, I don't know what the stat is, but I remember I was in a, a program about, because when I started my business, I, because I was in corporate, I was in marketing, I used to be a graphic designer way back in the day. And then I was like, you know what, I don't want to work with people. I just want to sit at my desk and do what I need to do. And the thing about e-design is like, you know, in order to hit certain markets, like it's a numbers game. Like you need to have like, yep. and I had, that's how I kind of started too. was like, okay, I need to pay my bills. So I need to at least make this much. So I, you know, reverse engineer what I would charge for that. But then, um, but there, you need an audience to, yeah. you know, and I think what I had heard, the point of what I was saying was, I think I heard somewhere like 1% of the people who visit your website, for example, will buy from you. Well, okay. If you do that yeah. kind of math, let's pretend it's even 10%. Um, you need to build an audience, right? So then somebody said to me, do you want to make money immediately? Like, do you need to make money now? And I was like, yeah, that would, and she's like, then I would strongly suggest trying to find one-on-one in-person work. It's going to happen much quicker. And I was so resistant. And then I realized that's what I wanted and I did want to work that way. But I think it's just such a, there's just so many people jumping from, I have an idea. I don't have an email list. I don't have an audience but I'm going to make this course. Yeah. And then if you just think about the math, like, yeah. first of all, having an audience isn't enough. It needs to be an engaged audience that actually yeah. cares about you Yeah. and not just subscribers on a list. But yeah. if you just do the math, let's say you have a thousand email subscribers mm-hmm. and you have a phenomenal open rate of 40%. Yeah. Which 400 is people open this email Yeah. and they saw that you're offering this thing a small percentage of them are going to read closely enough that they actually understand what you're offering. Mm -hmm. And a small percentage of that will actually click it. Let's say you get, again, a pretty phenomenal click rate of 10%. Now you have 40 people who land on the page where you're offering to sell a thing, 40 people out of a thousand. And um, gosh, if you have 1% of those people that translate into a customer, you're talking about half a person. So and your like, thing that you're selling is probably not ten thousand dollars. Yeah, it's <laughs> so the, the, yeah. the math breaks down pretty quickly. You need to have a pretty good top of funnel there of engaged people who care about you, who trust you, who have the problem that you're selling, and have the uh, purchasing power of what you've priced it at. Mm-hmm. There's so many variables, and you can figure it out, and you can build the audience. 
but you need so many cycles of trying and, and narrowing in that, yeah, it's not going to happen super quickly. Like you need to, you need to be audience first because then you can kind of fall into enough success to continue to make enough money to stay in the game. Mm -hmm. But if you are, if you have a small engaged audience, that's okay too. You just need to be a lot more like surgical with the shots that you're taking. Um, and that will come from like a lot of conversations. You have to really know those people. Mm -hmm. It might take like a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat, reaching out and saying, I know your situation and I think this is for you. I, I think this is a reason a lot of people freelance right now. And I think freelancing is mostly like a, a transient thing. Like I don't think people are set up to freelance forever. They either want to build an agency that's bigger than them. They want to employ people or they want to build some other uh, project on the side that creates income for them. Or they want to just like, try this out and we'll eventually get another job. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, it's like an in-between phase for most people. And a lot of people are doing it because they want to build products on the side. And that's a fantastic way to do it. That's what I've done for the last four years. It's like, how can I make enough money from service work that I can sell and make meaningful revenue quickly and reserve enough of my own time to make the projects and the products that will eventually comprise my income so I can stop doing service work? Yeah. Absolutely. And so when you started the, um, the accelerator, uh, thing, was it, uh, local people that you knew that you worked with, or you had an audience that you promoted it to, and it was all virtual from all across wherever it was, it was virtual from the beginning. Um, I would say lifetime 50 to 60% of the members are people in like the state that I'm living in that I've interacted with in some way. Cause like you build out from somewhere. Yeah. But I think at the time I had, uh, a few hundred email subscribers. I'd started writing earlier that year. Um, and the list is what grew it for the most part, but I kind of saturated that kind of quickly, right? Because yeah. it's a three month cycle. So if I emailed people and said, you want to do this thing? And they said, no. And three months later, I'm like, you want to do this thing? <laughs> the, people, the people who said yes, already already said yes, for the most part, like you run out pretty quickly. Yeah. And what I learned to do is just keep a really good basic CRM for myself. I would basically carve out five to 10 hours a week meeting with people one-on-one -on -one for the first time. If in conversation, they mentioned that they're a business owner and that they're struggling with something, I would make a note and I would one-to-one -one follow up with those people at the beginning of enrollment for that program and basically say like, Hey, last time we talked, you were doing this. Mm -hmm. I know that this could work for you. If that's interesting at all, let's have a call. Yeah. And I would make it that simple. Like just make the bar to say, do you want to talk about this more? And if they were interested enough to say, I want to talk about this more, I knew I could pretty much sell them 90% of the time. Right. And why did you know that? Because? Because I could talk in terms of the outcomes that they wanted. I could ask them questions of, well, what are your biggest priorities for the next three months? And they'd say X, Y, and Z. And it's like, oh, you can do that in three months. Like what you really need to do is make sure that you have a good plan in place and that you're holding yourself accountable to doing the, these things. But actually I'm going to be working with four other people who are doing something really similar um, we're kicking off in two weeks. I think you'd be a really good fit in this group. And I know we could get to where you're trying to go. Is that interesting to you? Like that's a hard proposition to turn down if you're a business owner and you understand yeah. the concept of investment. Yeah. Um, and let's go back to outcomes real quick. Actually, let's translate this into a homeowner. Uh, I'm talking to a homeowner on my discovery call and they say, you know, I just, I'm just so tired of seeing this room like with COVID going on. It's just, I just want a place to be relaxing and comfortable. Is that good enough an outcome or do I need to dig deeper? 
I think it probably is. Um, and you guys know how to speak this language a lot better, but if they say, I want this to be relaxing and calming, I would say, you know, well, what, what rooms of your house feel that way right now? Mm-hmm. And then you can start to pull in some insight as to why, or you might be able to expand the scope because it'd be like, actually, none of these do. And it's like, okay, well, when you think of relaxing and calming, like when was the last time you felt relaxed and calm? And they'll describe something and you can say, okay, I think I know what you're getting at. And I've worked with people like this in the past. And um, I found that we can get to a really good outcome. We just need to do A, B, and C. Um, it takes about four weeks, but yeah, if we got started, I'm pretty confident that four weeks from now, you could be feeling that in this room. Mm-hmm. And you make them imagine like a future where it's like, wow, in only four weeks or only whatever time period, I can feel this way that I want to feel. Like you, you invent this future and you lower the bar to just them saying, yes, I want that. Mm-hmm. Okay, I like it. Um, all right. Well, do you want to tell everybody a little bit more about the, um, the freelance, the, uh, blah, 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 the freelancing school? Like what, what do they get when they join freelancing school? I mean, most of it is, is articles. So like I have a couple of core articles that I wrote this year about, um, how to set up your business to be successful as a freelancer, but it's pretty early stage. The stuff that's most helpful is the courses. And there are three of them, business for freelancers, marketing for freelancers, and selling for freelancers. You can buy them individually or you can bundle them. But they are all about helping you get a handle on the boring business stuff to help the business reward you in the way you want to be rewarded. Like if you want time for your creative projects, this will help you set up the processes to do that. It'll help you figure out the budget that you need to do that. It'll help you understand your cash flow. If you need more projects, this will help you become more confident in marketing yourself, understand more about positioning like we were talking about earlier, and ultimately help you sell more projects at higher prices. Um, We have a free community too, which is at freelancing.school. You'll see the community tab. That's a free resource. Come in, ask questions. Um, It's a really fun place to hang out. And if you're listening to this podcast because you like podcasts, listen to Creative Elements. Um, Absolutely. I talked to high-profile creators who are making a living online, pretty much online creators. And instead of talking to them about their work, like I'm not talking to Seth Godin about marketing. I'm talking to Seth Godin about like, how did you get to be Seth Godin? Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> you know? badass to be talking to Seth Godin. Yeah. Well, that episode exists. So go, go yeah. listen to it. It's episode yeah. one. <laughs> um, what, well, first of all, how did you approach that? Especially Getting Seth on the show? episode one. Yeah. Well, releasing it as episode think, one doesn't mean it was the first episode I recorded. Oh, smarty pants. But still, you don't have like a... Yeah, how did you how did you frame that? That was a sale in its own. For sure. Everything's a sale. Yeah. Well, Everything's a sale. Um, share a little bit about that. I'm, I'm intrigued because sometimes I try to get some guests and I uh, get crickets. So, so it's similar for high profile guests like Seth. I'm sorry. You know what I'm going to say? The people listening who might not know, Seth Godin is like a big marketing guru in the marketing world. Um He's, he's a pretty massive name, but okay. massive he wrote name many to books, a certain like set of people for sure. Yeah. yeah. For, for people who um, are difficult to access or have a lot of demand for their time, they want to know that if they're going to invest time in this, it's worth it. And they can either do that because you tell them, this is how many people are listening to this show. I didn't have that when I reached out to Seth. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> so the other way you can do that is a call in a favor or B, make it seem like people like him do things like this. And I did a little bit of both. Um, for one, I had um, 
bought a lot of his programs. And one of the programs that I bought was the podcasting fellowship, the first time he offered it. And my other show upside went through that program. And I had emailed him after the program saying, this is really helpful. Here's our show. When I asked him to come on the show, I literally followed up on the same email chain that he had already responded to. So it shows that the relationship existed and it was on topic. It's like, Hey, I released this new show. You'd be an awesome guest. I'd love to talk with you. By the way, I've already interviewed James Clear, um, who's a name that he would recognize too. So it's a quick heuristic of like, Oh, people like me do this. And now because I went out of the gate with Seth Godin, episode one, James Clear, episode two, James was a, is a friend. So it was a calling in a favor, but now people look at the guest list and they're like, Oh, this is something that people like me do. And it's a really easy sell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like I see my call, like my equals doing this. Mm-hmm. And now for you, mm. you have a couple of really great points of um, of of marketing, I guess I'll say. Your album art is great. You've done 94 episodes, so it shows that you're taking this seriously. You have I think 83 reviews, which is some measure of how many people are listening, um, which is a lot more than most shows, honestly. And these people get asked about shows all the time. So all those things are going to stand out. I'd say you know that means you did a lot of effort because you have to go to a different country to see that many reviews. And because if you only go to Canada, I only have so many. So like you, you're definitely checking it out unless there's a different way to do that. Uh, I do my homework. Yeah, no. but well, that's if you can, I feel I feel pride that you still wanted to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> if you can, if you can pair that with just like a quick like, here's the pitch about the show. It should always be short, always be short in these emails. It should be I, I think of it as like a, a scroll test. You should only need to scroll once with your thumb at okay. max, preferably none. But say, here's why I'm reaching out to you. Um, here's what I would like to do on this show. Here's a bit about the show. If you're open to it, I'll send a scheduling link. And just be really short. Be really direct. Tell them that it's a 45-minute interview. Tell them that you would like to talk with them sometime in the next couple of months. Like give them a huge window for when you can talk. Because a lot of people, this is true of people just scheduling things, meetings with clients and things generally, you make the window too tight. Like you win them over. They say, I will talk to you. And they say, do you have time next week? And it's like, no, I don't have time this month. And now they feel like the jerk yeah. Because they have to tell you no, even though they initially want to tell you yes. So make it really easy to say yes. Because often when you say, do you have time in the next couple of months? They'll be like, of course I have time in the next couple of yeah, months. Yeah, how can and you say send, no? No, I'm so busy. I don't have time in the next yeah. couple of months. And then you yeah. send them the, the, the scheduling link and they'll end up scheduling something two weeks from now anyway. You know, yeah, yeah. but it's, it's, it's a different frame. I love it. Thank you for that. That's a, that's some gold I'll be using in the very immediate future. Okay. Tell everybody where they can find you. And you already told them to go listen to the creative elements podcast and where should they find you on the socials and your website? I'm on Instagram and Twitter at J Klaus, and that will get you everywhere else you need to go. Love it. Short and sweet. I do. I help homeowners furnish their homes. Love it. Gotta work on that. (laughs) I help creatives become confident business owners. I love it. See, I need a little more, uh, something a little bit more aspirational in mind. So yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. That was so great. I, so many nuggets. I, it's rare. I find anymore that I talk to somebody who says something I never heard before I find. So I, I love when that happens. So thank you. Awesome, awesome weekend. Go awesome. Meet. You too. Good <laughs> to meet you, Michelle. Let me know when it goes out. I'll share. I will for sure. It might even go out next week. So. Ooh, okay. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. So that was such an incredible chat with Jay. I 
sometimes I talk to people I don't know what I'm gonna I'm gonna get because they are the ones who approached me and I just love when I talk to somebody who I just have no idea what's gonna happen and they just freaking blow my mind so there was a few things that they that he said that really resonated with me that I kind I want to repeat because I think they were just so good and nothing I've really heard before so The one thing he said was around 25 minutes in when he said, people don't like bad news, but people especially don't like bad news if they feel they have no other option. So I just think that's such a a wise, wise thought because a wise thought, you know, it's not wise, that statement. Um, But I just, I really like that because it's all about how you say something. So this is something that I'm now going to try to do a better job of instead of just giving bad news giving them bad news, but with options. So I loved that. That was just so smart. And then the next thing that he said that I thought was so good and so liberating was people hire the best person for their job in their subjective opinion. Leading with price probably, I mean, I'm I'm adding the word probably means that the best option for them is based on price. Um, so that was a bit paraphrasing, but There's nothing that is just so freaking genius and there's nothing wrong with people deciding that price is the most important thing, but I think it's our job to figure out what we're about and to understand. So for example, I am not trying to say or be the most affordable designer and by accepting that and and if somebody's leading with price, I can just have a very open and real conversation and we can decide that I'm not the best fit for you. And this has happened quite a few times in the last like probably three weeks or so. And when that happens, I basically just suggest it's again, people don't like bad news, but they don't like bad news if they have no other option. So, you know, we establish that maybe I'm not the best fit, but then I try to be a hero and find somebody who might be a good fit. Maybe somebody who does e-design or maybe just starting out and they're just kind of building. So So there's really good ways that you can help people. So for me, I don't do renovations anymore. And that doesn't mean though, I try to talk to any lead that comes through. Um, And I talked to somebody recently who I knew already before talking, they weren't really a fit on account of the services they want, but I really wanted to go above and beyond and try to give them names of other designers that they could, you know, look at their portfolio and see if they're a fit that way. And at the end of the day, they still have a really good taste in their mouth. And maybe, just maybe, by the time they want to furnish, maybe they will consider working with me if that's something they do in the future. So thank you so much, Jay. I hope you guys check them out. Um, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. I want to share a little bit of an update with regards to, that's right, the Biographical Design Collective. So I've shared a little bit about a little bit. I probably shared a lot about the Biographical Design Collective. My coach, Katie Gutierrez, her husband, Ruben Gutierrez, um, are doing group coaching, particularly Katie. And I've also been doing a lot of one-on-one calls with her. And we've been chatting through things like my sales pitch. We've been talking about hiring. I just hired an assistant. Welcome to the team, Andrea. Um, on Monday, and I'm so excited for where that's going to go. But we also talked about flat fees. So I'm just going to start not necessarily from the beginning because we're already like a minute and 13 in and ain't nobody got time for that. But I 
Throughout the group coaching, so I think we sh- I shared a little bit about the three-day immersion, which I know she's got another one happening in January, but the three-day immersion that I did in May was when I really was able to identify what my philosophy was and my process, and my philosophy being curated design, and my process being the art method. And that in itself was incredible, and I'm very excited to say that now I've been working with a copywriter who I also found out about through another designer through the the Biographical Design Collective, Um, and she's been fleshing out those philosophies, so they just feel a little bit better explained, better written, because I'm not a wordsmith. So... Part of what we had to do too was she shared her sales pitch and over the period of, you know, the May, June, July, August, September, I guess five months, I can't believe I've been working with her for five months. I've been really crafting my sales pitch and I've changed my process. And this is all as a result of working with Biographical Design Collective. And I now, and I'm testing this for the next little while because everything's always about testing and seeing how it works. But I used to offer... A two-hour consultation and then I would put together a proposal and you know hope that they would become come on full service and hope that the ideas that I threw out in this limited time and limited knowledge of their needs would be enough to get them excited to work with me and get to the next step. Now what I do though is I pre-qualify people before and on the discovery call and identify whether or not they are a contender, a contender, I don't know if that's the right word, a candidate, a potential uh, client for full service. Once we identify that, and I will note that if somebody's leading with price, then that means I generally want to dig a little deeper and make sure that they are, in fact, a candidate and can afford this service. But the next step is I do an, an in-home meet and greet, and they're going to take me through their space. And this is all based on uh, Katie and Ruben's um, process. And it is free of charge. We're not offering any um, ideas during that time, um, but I'm getting to know the client to make sure that they feel like a good fit. So I recently had an experience where I had a client pay $500 for a consultation, and then I just realized that the project wasn't for me. And in theory, and I definitely gave them a lot of value in that consultation, but I didn't, I personally didn't get the warm fuzzies. Um, saying to them that we wouldn't be moving forward. So I ended up refunding them. And now I'm not saying that that was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, but that was what felt right for me. And I, I gave them the option if they didn't feel like they got enough value, um, they wanted, they could ask for a refund. And they, they asked for a refund and I respected that. So now what this does is it allows me to go into the home and get a feel for them, their style, their space. Do I even like this home enough to want to work in it? Do I like their style enough, like what they want? Um, Do I like this person enough? And then I sit down, we do that maybe for 15 minutes, and then I sit down and I'm going to take them through my sales pitch, which is a presentation, aka keynote, um, which outlines, you know, it starts by me asking about them. You know, what would your dream be in the, for this space? You know, what, you know, what's, why are you struggling? So we're trying to find hot buttons and like what their pain points are. Then I ask them, you know, would it be okay if I tell you a little bit about how I work, but a little bit of the backstory about my philosophy and how I got here. They say yes. And then I then share with them a very personal story about an experience in my own home. And then, which leads me to how curated design became a thing and how the art method became a thing. And that it's like, you know, 
something that only Michelle Bennett Design offers. And then I go into, you know, the process, what they can expect. Um, I tell them, you know, you get 3D renderings and you get this. And then we go into phase two, phase three. And then at the very end, I do um, the fees. And I talk a little bit about potential budget for their furniture. And after being very resistant to the idea of, of flat fees, I had a good chat with Katie who um, helped me realize that I was hiding a little bit behind the hours because what I was doing was I would quickly quote things like I knew enough, like I had a spreadsheet that allowed me to say, okay, there's one dining room, one living room, and it would be a range. So I would be hiding behind. I would say things like, okay, so it's probably going to be about 30 to 90 hours, but you know what? It's, it could be on the lower side if, you know, if you're very decisive and, you know, so it was kind of like I was using that as a crutch because I did not feel confident in that number in a flat fee. I was also really scared that I would be screwing myself with a flat fee. So we had a really good chat and she helped me kind of unblock some of my mindset issues around it. And we kind of just realized, or I realized, and we chatted about like, if it doesn't work, if I screw it up the first time, like I can up the fee later, not for that client, but the next time around. Um, but there's a lot of opportunity and understanding the fact that maybe with some clients, I might end up going over hours that I planned to a bit. But in other situations, ideally, more times than not, I would be coming in below the hours of the flat fees, making it much more profitable. So I'm so happy to say that um, I had a discovery call. I'm just going to look at my calendar. I had a discovery call with this client on uh, October 19th. And she was actually somebody who lives in Quebec and is, and she was at a referral from a previous client who I might add was a client very early on who did a very DIY, which I don't offer anymore. She was probably one of my very first clients um, and she had recently been divorced and she gave her my name. So I was also contending against um, talking to somebody who I might've had preconceived notions that, well, she probably thinks it's going to be cheap and that I do DIY stuff. Um, but I did not allow myself to feel that way. And I... Talked to her. I I basically made sure she was a good candidate. We had a really good chat. We determined she's not looking for IKEA, um, so on and so forth. So because she's not in her home yet, we decided to do a virtual meet and greet. So uh, asked her to send me photos of this the home she's going into, and also to um, kind of be ready to tell me what she's looking for. So. On the a week later, on the Monday that on this Monday that just passed, I met with her for an hour and a half virtually. I took her through um, on Zoom my presentation. It wasn't perfect, but what was great was during my coaching um, group sessions, I had the opportunity to present to the the group of designers and have somebody role play with me as the client, and it was so helpful in trying to work way way through it and you know, the part with the pricing got a little dicey. And that's why Katie and I met later to discuss pricing. And that's how we landed on flat fees. So I did this with her and it was amazing. It was so incredible. Every now and then I'd pop it. I'd say like, you know, does this resonate with you? She'd say yes. And it was awesome because I knew what her pain points were. So I could. So for example, she really, really wanted to make sure that it wasn't a designer just coming in and saying like, you're going to do this. And she wanted her home. She kept saying she wanted her home to feel like her because I think she said she was recently divorced and that she never felt like her home was her. So it was great because I could say and point to that. I say, you you know, our discovery process is, you know, it's called the art method and it's very much my 
my philosophy is that I want to create a space uniquely you, but not only that, but that facilitates memories that last a lifetime. And so I was able to say, remember how you were like, really want a space that feels like you? Well, this process, the way that I work is that I'm going to, I want to figure out what it is that is going to make this space uniquely you. And this is what we do. I show you a couple pictures and I want you to tell me which one you like better. And it's like a little game we play. And so I was able to point to that. Then we get to the end and I share with her the low, medium, high budget. And she identifies that my low was actually even lower than she was thinking. So that's great news for me. Um, and I should note that my low was not Ikea low either. So that, that was a plus for me. Then I decide I'm going to rip the band-aid off and tell her that flat fees. And the, the way I decided to do this was to do by square footage. And um, I'm not going to tell you what square footage I landed on because I'm worried that people are going to possibly use that without doing any of the work. And I haven't tested it enough to know that that's the right number. But I, I came up with a number that kind of aligned with some of the hours it normally takes me in other projects. I found, I basically reverse engineered, went back to other projects to determine their square footage to figure out what it, the cost actually ended up being for them and if it aligned. It made it so easy. I did not have to put together a proposal for her. It was an hour and a half of my time, of course, but it was an hour and a half of my time that I might have done in a consultation, which of course would have been paid. But at the same time, I am not fully qualifying them. I'm not selling them on why me. So uh, it was for, I mean, you could probably reverse engineer this, I suppose, but for her living room and dining room, which was the project, and a floor plan for her master bedroom, which I will do if there's a, other additional scope. I think it was like 8,000, someone, whatever. And then I have it broken down by 50% before phase one, 20% I'm going on memory, 20% before phase two, 25% before phase three, 5% upon completion. Told her all that, and then she talked about wanting to be moved in by January. Didn't I wasn't feeling warm fuzzies about that timeline, so I said to her, okay, I would like to just take a look at the timeline based on, you know, the process and get back to you on that. So let me get back to you on that and let you know what I think a realistic timeline would be. So I did that, and then the next morning, I sent her just a Gantt chart. Basically, it's the I use Smartsheet, so it's all like a template that I can pop in a number when I'm gonna start, because I also couldn't start till the end of November. So in my head, I was a little nervous. I was a little nervous that I could, that I wasn't comfortable starting before November 27th, I think it was. And I mentally thought, she's not going to, this is going to deter her from working with me. And then I said, we wouldn't be ready, you know, sofa and dining table exception. That's going to be 12 weeks, but probably we're looking at February. And I sent it to her and I just said, whatever. It is what it is. She either works with me or she doesn't. She reviewed it. She emailed me right away. She said, let's do it. I'm so excited. And I honestly do not think that if she hadn't gone through that sales pitch with me where she could really feel aligned and we could both be bought into each other, I can, the sales pitch allowed me to say, does that resonate with you? And they said, oh, that just sounds like a long time that I could know like, this is not the right fit for me. Or, you know what, I don't, I don't really want to put that much effort in or whatever. Or if she said it didn't resonate for her, we can really figure out that we're not aligned for each other. So that was just my long-winded way of saying that. I created a sales pitch. I did my very first flat fee, which felt somewhat high. And it was very scary because before I used to quote number of hours, not dollar amounts. Another thing I was hiding behind. And when my first time I got an immediate, let's do this. I'm so excited. 
And honestly, I know that that could not have felt, I could not have felt that comfortable doing that without my sales pitch, without having my philosophy, the art method, all of these things. And I really, really, really want to give a shout out to Katie specifically, Katie Gutierrez of the Biographical Design Collective. Excuse me. And I want you to, um, if this, if this sounds like something that would be helpful to you, and this is just a small, 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 small piece of the things that she's helping me with. She helped me figure out how to hire my first assistant. I'm now going to talk to her about hiring a designer guys. Like, I don't even know who I am right now, but, um, it's been incredible. And, um, I want you to go check out biographicaldesign.com. And if you feel like it resonates, but you're not sure, then schedule a call with Katie, have a chat with her, make sure you tell her that I sent you, but um, see if it's a fit for you, because I'm telling you, working with Katie, the Biographical Design Collective, and this group coaching has legitimately been the best thing that I've ever done for my business. So thank you for listening to that spiel. I want to read another review today. Thank you to Annie J17. Whoop whoop. So she said, and I quote, best interior design podcast. Michelle asks all the right questions for everyone else just starting their own interior design business. She doesn't stop at the service level, but continues to get the full details on implementing processes. Thank you so much, Michelle, and keep up the great work. Keep being open and honest. Your podcast is the best. Thank you so much, Annie. I so appreciate it. Guys, if you enjoyed that podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. I want to read your review on the podcast next week. How about that? I think that's all I got. So I will talk to you next week. Bye.